0: and you can get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash slash film.
1: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify?
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, October 30th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief Peter Storita, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. A weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers, Whytran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Uh, Some people yesterday noticed that HT sounded a little different, a little bit better. It was because she was recording the stream yesterday while Ben was taking over the hosting duties. So if you're wondering why, that is why uh, we're trying to improve the audio all the time here on the podcast, but uh, that's why uh, HT sounded a little bit different yesterday. Uh, But let's dive into what we've been doing, guys. Um... Let's talk about, uh, okay, yeah, what have I been doing? I've uh, not been doing that much lately. I've uh, This weekend I went to Los Angeles Comic Con, which used to be called Stanley's Kamikaze. And I think they lost the name either because of Stanley's, you know, the business dealing situation. Or maybe they wanted to disassociate themselves with Stanley. I don't know. I'm not sure why, uh, but this is a convention at the Los Angeles Convention Center, and it's actually kind of funny because they've just changed their name, and they're going to have to change it again because, uh, as we reported on this podcast, San Diego Comic-Con won the rights to the word (laughs) Comic-Con, so uh, maybe they'll become Los Angeles Kamikaze again. (laughs) Uh, But uh, this convention uh, I go to every year. It's fun because it happens on the weekend before Halloween, so it seems like there's usually more cosplay than normal uh for like a non big, you know, San Diego Comic-Con type convention. Uh so there's a lot of people in their co- co- Halloween costumes and in extensive cosplay. Uh but it it's really just one of those conventions where you walk the floor and see, you know, what kind of fun things you can buy. They they have a they have a main stage, which I I think you guys would be this is very weird. The main stage is in the convention hall on the back side of the convention hall. So they have like rows of seats there. And then there's like kind of like a small, like, you know, six foot uh, high like gate like blocking off it, you know, the entrance. But it's like part of the convention hall. So throughout the convention hall, you can hear like the main stage. It's not like San Diego Comic Con where it's like a totally different room. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, I don't know. It's an expensive convention to go to. There isn't much to do there. I I just like buying stuff and seeing all the the fun, geeky stuff. Uh, The the only thing I really walked away from the convention this year is I bought a t-shirt that uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy font, uh, or logo font, says, uh, Rehire James Gunn. So uh, that was a good purchase, I think. Um, I also, over the weekend got to go to some house haunts. I had never done this before. I've talked about on the podcast how I've kind of, uh, in the last, uh, you know, five or six years, gotten sucked into the Halloween Horror Nights and Not Scary Farm and those kind of uh, haunted maze events. Uh, If in most, like, major cities, uh, you know, there are houses that actually put on their own, like... Haunts like in their backyards. There's actually a great documentary on this, uh, by the guy that did best worst movie called The Great American Scream, which I've plugged on this podcast in the past. Uh, this was my first year going to a couple. I went to a couple in Burbank, California. One called Rodden Apple 907. Uh, that one uh, was interesting. It had like almost a like an hour long line going down the street. And these, this, uh, this maze was built in the front yard of this person's house and they, they do it every year and um, they just do it. They, they do like a they ask it's free, but they ask for a donation to, I, I think it was like a animal charity of some kind. And um, this year, every year they change their, their maze completely. This year it was uh Geppetto's workshop, but he's uh, run out of wood and is looking for a different organic material to use. Ie you know human beings. Uh, It it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, It actually made use of like there's like a kid playing Pinocchio in there, which was uh, when you go to like these Halloween Horror Night events uh, and such. You know, it's all like you know adults scaring you. It, It was kind of weird and creepy to have like a kid in the maze uh, scaring you. It had a lot of cool details and some good scares, um, but, uh, you know, it's a long line. So uh, if you're in Southern California, I think this is going until Halloween, so you might want to check this out. Uh, And uh, I also went to another one called Backyard's Maze or Backwood's Maze. Uh, And this one I would recommend more. I I actually sent, uh, Jacob, I sent you a video of this one. This one is much bigger. They do it every year, and they keep the stuff they build. Like, these guys are, like, insane craftsmen. Like, they build, like, these, like, it's very video game inspired. It's like a junk, a sci-fi junkyard in the post-apocalyptic future, I guess, is the theme, because they just kind of, like, add stuff to it every year. And it has, like, these gigantic, like, uh, bionic robots, and it's pretty insane it uh it also has a long line not as long of a line uh but i would say that the the this toxic junkyard is like on par with what i've seen at not scary farm so if you if you and again it's free if you're in burbank you should or in southern california you should check this out backwoods maze and um what else have i been doing i've uh i spent way too much time this week at the Magic Castle, Magic Castle every year at Halloween time uh, because, you know, Magic and Halloween go together. Uh, they have this huge Halloween celebration. Uh, they theme out the castle. They basically, like, uh, this whole crew called the Boo Crew basically transform the castle into something else. This year, they've transformed the Magic Castle into a murder mansion. So, it's a murder mystery. Uh, there's uh, actors in every one of the rooms and you, you, when you've When you arrive there, you're given a kind of a sheet with the clues and you got to there's three different murder mysteries. And by the end of the night, hopefully you have figured out who, you know, did it. And you can actually go to this booth and actually, you know, uh, put in your guess, and you'll get to see how the murder played out. And if you were right, we were right. Um, This but this whole experience is interesting because uh, talking to people at this event it was either way too complicated for, for those people that are like drunk and whatever, or it was way too simple. Uh, I thought it was way too complicated. It almost gets me worried for something like star Wars galaxy edge, a galaxy's edge. And in the interactivity that that's going to have, like, I'm sure there's going to be a part where you're like, you know, given a mission by the resistance and you have to go do these things. And I feel like if, if they make it too complicated, it's going to be k- kind of, uh, I don't know. I, I it, it it was it was a little bit frustrating I would I'll say but uh it was fun. Um uh, and uh I've also uh I posted on my Instagram I I finally completed my Scott C uh trilogy of great showdowns for the Avengers which is Avengers 1, uh Captain America Civil War and Avengers Infinity War and I have uh framed them and hung them up my wall. Uh I've posted in the past I have this whole wall of uh, this artist Scott C does these things called great showdowns, which are basically like great showdowns from movie history or even TV or video games. He does other stuff too. Uh, but I only do the movies and, it, you know, it has one person or two different sides. It could be one person and one person. It could be a one person versus a bunch of people. It could be whatever it could be, you know, John McClane and glass on the other side. So, um, so I have this whole wall of Scott C great showdowns and, um, I've been building that wall out or, you know, uh, expanding it rather. And uh, the the place where I used to buy my frames is this place called Aaron Brothers, which is owned by Michael's. And they recently went out of business. So now I am in the uh, situation where I have like this whole extensive area of my uh, place that... Have all of the same frame. These frames, it turns out, were made by Aaron Brothers and Aaron Brothers no longer exists. So I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, in a situation of I don't know what to do. Should I just buy a different kind of frame and then it, like be mismatched or should I just stop my wall? So I wanted to ask you guys, like, what, what should I do? I have a a
0: possible solution for you, Peter. I know that um, I used to also buy frames at Aaron Brothers. And in L.A., there is a Michaels that's in Burbank. And I think there's an Aaron Brothers that's still inside that Michaels. Um, It's like mm. back in in the back wall. And they still sell some frames and stuff back there. I don't know if they have a limited uh, quantity or or selection or uh, if they're no longer manufacturing the same exact things that the whole full store used to manufacture but you might be able to find some stuff there um but yeah if, if that's not an option i'm interested if anybody else <laughs> has any uh alternates
2: like, like, like i'm very ocd so I'm, I'm curious what you guys think because like these frames are very particular they have like a plastic frame to them and i've i've looked online for frames and they're very different looking All right, here's so,
3: my question peter how full is the actual wall right now
2: i mean it's pretty full i mean it was In that it, case, it, it was yeah. going up the stairs at, at this point. It was on one wall and then going up the stairs.
3: Well, keep the collection. Find a new frame that you like from a different place. And when, when the collection turns a corner, have it turn a corner, have a new frame series start. That way there's a smooth transition between old frame and new frame. Problem solved.
2: See, I'm not anywhere near a corner. though.
3: <laughs> well, then it sounds like you have some rearranging to do, sir.
2: <laughs> Chris, I know you have some uh, prints on your walls and stuff. Like, Would this bother you?
4: uh it might i don't i've seen like photos of your walls though and they've it it looks (laughs) like you have you have stuff like covering every single inch which i don't think i could do i think that would drive me a little more crazy
2: yeah yeah um hd do you is there any ocd there you don't even care
5: no i don't really care i mean i (laughs) there are some prints i have that i haven't even bothered to frame just because i'm very lazy so
2: I mean, I have tons of prints. I'm not the best person to
5: ask for this advice.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I have tons of prints I have not framed, but um, I'm not. I'm just not sure what to do. I'm gonna check out Michaels. That's a good uh, tip, Ben, because this is literally going up one third of my uh, my stairway. So it's there isn't a corner in sight, (laughs) Jacob. (laughs) Uh, But okay, anyways, that's what I've been doing. So I've been trying to figure out the solution to that. Brad, what have you been up to?
6: Uh, well, I'm in Utah right now. I have been in Utah since Saturday. Uh, I came out here to see my girlfriend for a week, so I'm here until this coming Saturday. And we're just hanging out, uh, doing some fun stuff around town. She's showing me around. I've been out here um, b- before for Sundance and whatnot, but I've never really like hung out and done stuff extensively out here. So we've been going around, uh, just grabbing some good food. We actually even ventured up to Park City just to see what it's like when Sundance isn't happening. Uh, right now it's considerably less snowy, which is kind of weird to see uh, the mountains and all of Park City not covered in snow. I've only ever seen it when it's just buried under the snow that's been there uh, during the winter preceding when Sundance begins. Uh, so we went up to Park City and stopped by headquarters and the uh, the Egyptian, which I thought the Egyptian was a theater all the time. Like I know most of the other theaters our makeshift theaters at the the high school and the library and and whatnot but i thought the egyptian was always a movie theater but it's actually uh, a concert venue most of the time and fog hat the classic rock band was uh has a concert coming up there soon or maybe just had or something like that so that was uh, kind of interesting to find
2: out yeah it's always strange to go to a place that you're usually like. You know, I've been going to Comic Con for I think like ten years now, and re- just recently, I, or like a year or two ago, I went to San Diego when it wasn't Comic Con. It's so strange to be at this place when it's completely different than what your experience of it is.
6: Yeah, for sure. I've de- I've been to San Diego when Comic Con isn't going on
2: either. And it's very weird. Yeah, um, Jacob, what have you been up to? You've been uh, getting ready for Halloween.
3: Yeah, I've had a very uneventful week, uh, nothing exciting to talk about, except that my wife and I decided that since we have a house now, we need to have proper uh, trick-or-treater plans since our neighborhood's grown by leaps and bounds since last year, and we expect to get at least a few kids. So I don't know if this is a thing that's known to kids who didn't grow up in the suburbs, but I know growing up in a series of suburbs throughout my life... There's always a one house in the neighborhood that gave up full-size candy bars every year, and they're always, they were the legendary house. You got there first to make sure you got your full-size candy bar. So my wife and I decided to be that house. We will be that legend, and we went and bought a bunch of full-size candy bars.
2: Yeah. So kids will,
3: kids will know us. We will be the legends of the neighborhood.
2: But did you get good – Full-size candy bars. Question.
3: Oh yeah, we got we we got to make sure of everything. There's a couple different packages of all the d- different varieties. So I think, I think I think everybody will be pleased. There'll be something for everyone. Yeah.
2: So you're gonna let the people pick it out, pick out which one oh, they want. Of course, I'm not I'm not a Halloween Nazi, Peter. I let the kids choose. <laughs> I wish I had a house. I live in a condo, and I wish I had a house because I would totally be that house on the block that like decks out their front yard with all like huge Halloween. Decorations? Have you done that this year? Uh, Nothing extreme
3: yet. We actually went and (laughs) hit us some some Halloween clearance. got a bunch of stuff really cheap. So we're actually going to hang some stuff tonight. We got a a projector. It's going to project like ghostly images all over from our house. So nothing like all out. Like my my brother, for example, I went to a Halloween party at his house where he had like uh, bloody satanic scarecrows he had made. um, Like a, a, a staged hit and run on his driveway with a dead body. Like, all kinds of music playing from hidden speakers. Like, he goes all out. We just have a few, you know, fun little decorations. But uh, maybe next year. Maybe next year I'll try to do
2: something a little more extreme. Ben, what have you been up to?
3: So,
0: my wife and I went to a Halloween party slash baby shower over the weekend. And it was sort of like a, you know, how how does
2: that work? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, my, my friends are, uh, my, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, my friend and his wife are about to have a baby and they are just, they just love Halloween and they're just decided to combine the two celebrations. So it was basically just like wear a costume to come celebrate the fact that we're having a baby. And you know, the, the, they did gifts and the whole deal. Um, they had some fun games and stuff like that there. Uh, but it was basically just an excuse for everybody to hang out and for grown adults to wear costumes together in the middle of the day. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. I, I dressed up as the horrifying mutant bear from Annihilation, uh, which, by the way, that bear actually has a name. Does, does anybody know what that bear's name is? Kevin. <laughs> it's, no, it's not
4: Kevin. If anybody uh,
2: knows the name, it has to be Chris. Chris, do you know the name?
4: I forgot. I remember I read an article about it in Entertainment Weekly, and I yes.
0: I, I already <laughs> forgot it. Yeah, it, the bear's name is Homerton, uh, and the reason for that is that Andrew Whitehurst was the visual effects supervisor for both Annihilation and Paddington, and Paddington obviously is named after Paddington that's Station amazing.
5: Um,
2: in <laughs> London,
0: and yeah, there's sort of like a, a he called it a slightly rough-around-the-edges station nearby <laughs> that is a, a rail station in East London <laughs> called Homerton, so that's why they named the bear from Annihilation Homerton. Um, so yeah, I, I had uh, like two skull masks, and my wife Amy did this amazing job of cutting them up and and sort of using all this prop glue and stuff to uh to glue them together where i basically was wearing two skulls you can see a picture of it on my uh twitter and instagram if you want to look but um we'll what,
2: what link yeah, in it was- the show notes
0: yeah, it's uh, it's pretty horrifying. And I had I like isolated the sound clips from the movie where the the bear is screaming with a human voice. And I had that on my phone as a song. So I would just play it, you know, sometimes throughout the the party uh, when I was trying to mess with people. And there were a few kids there and uh, they were appropriately terrified of me. Um, so I kind of felt a little bad about that because there were like they were uh, toddlers who would just look up at me in, you know, sheer uh, terror. So uh, but, you know, you got to got to scare them or. I guess
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah you got to get them in the Halloween spirit uh (laughs) HD what have you been up to
5: Now I'm just imagining like a a Paddington Annihilation crossover (laughs) (laughs) in which maybe they're long lost cousins. Um, Anyways, I also went to a sort of a combination party when I went to New York this weekend. Um, So I went up to the city to uh, check out my new apartment and uh, sign for it, which I'm very excited for. I'm moving in in about two weeks. And um, while I was there, I attended my friend's housewarming party which doubled as a Halloween party. Uh, Just by coincidence my friend happened to live like 10 minutes away from where my new apartment is so it was very exciting as well and um, I dressed up as the 13th doctor. Only one person knew who I was but she was very excited to see um, that I was dressed as that and I was kind of like a bargain bin version of the 13th doctor because I just kind of cobbled together a bunch of um, clothing items I already had and then used my like 11th doctor sonic screwdriver because i didn't want to buy the new one um or didn't have time to buy the new one just yet but it was i was very proud of my costume and i spent a lot of the the night just (laughs) excitedly talking about doctor who with the one friend who did recognize the costume Uh, it was fun and um i got to see my neighborhood which i hadn't got a chance to because um my my roommate who I'm moving in with is uh, my college roommate, and she had checked out the place beforehand, but this is my first time seeing um, the place and the neighborhood um, firsthand. And it's it's really sweet. It's a, it's a neighborhood in Sunnyside in Queens. Um, I think I talked about this a little bit before on the podcast. Yes, I will be um, in Spider-Man's neighborhood. Actually, yeah. we went to a diner that had Spider-Man on the menu. So I think that they're definitely leaning into that connection as well.
2: They need a statue, just like uh, they do. What call it has uh, the Steve Rogers statue. I, I'm very interested in this because this is like a big move, HT. And yes, you, you had never visited this place. Like you just like we're like, yeah, sure, that sounds like a good neighborhood. Well, we
5: Facetimed. Like so, she <laughs> Facetimed when we were looking at the apartment. So I got a good uh, view of it through her phone. But you know, being there is a little bit different than seeing it through a phone. But I was confident in her. I trusted her judgment and. Uh, Yeah, I I was very happy with the choice, too. So, yeah, it was my first time seeing it, so it could have been a gamble, but it wasn't, thankfully.
2: (laughs) Very cool. We're excited to hear about uh, your big move to New York and actually learn about all the cool, geeky stuff in New York. Uh, But let's uh, move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, uh, what have you been reading?
3: I've been picking through two new uh, encyclopedia-style books, the first of which is the Super Mario Brothers encyclopedia that Nintendo just released, uh, published by Dark Horse. And I was pretty excited to read this or flip through it because I've bought, uh, courses, uh, three legend of Zelda encyclopedias that, uh, go into the history of the game and its art and the lore in the game itself or the game series itself. And they are these beautiful books worth every penny. I love them. And I love how they explore both the game world and the creation of the game world. And I'm a little let down. on my super Mario Bros. Encyclopedia. It's not as good. It's not as comprehensive, uh, it's not something you can pick up and like flip through and just read through and have a good time like it did with Zelda books. It is very much an encyclopedia. It is very much a collection of all the little miscellaneous tidbits you ever want to know about, a, about the Mario series from the very first game up until this year. Does, does it
2: talk and, about Donkey Kong? Because I know Mario uh, started in Donkey Kong.
3: Uh, no, it's, it, it, it starts with Super Mario Brothers. It gives Donkey Kong a a, there's a, there's a chapter of other games Mario has appeared in. Uh, and, and and gives a notice to the Donkey Kong there, but the in terms of actual official full-fledged chapters going breaking down new of every single game, it begins with the original Super Mario Brothers for NES. Um, it's it's a, it's a cool book. It's well designed. If you want to like open up a page and find a complete listing with images of every single enemy and every single Super Mario Brothers game by by divided by game, uh, it's useful. It's a useful thing to have. I'm happy to have it on my shelf, but it well, is not wait, like
2: I have another question for you, Jacob. Yeah does it have super mario brothers 2 that was in, only in, released in japan until uh, yeah. we got it as, as part of that um that collection i forgot what that collection uh, was
3: yep it ha- it has that it has it pretty much has all the core mario games both japanese and american ones um all pretty much all, all the main core games i'm not sure if it covers like the mario parties other than, other than like maybe a footnote but All the main games are covered in extensive, extensive detail that is really fun to reference and not fun to read through. So if you (laughs) So it's kind of thing like if you want a reference guide, like a handy reference guide, that's what this is. And it's a really cool thing. It's pretty cheap on Amazon right now. It's only $23 for a $40 book. And if you're a big Mario Brothers fan, it's it's a really cool thing to have. It just don't expect to sit down and read like a lush history of the Mario Brothers series. But the exact opposite of this is a new book called Dungeons and Dragons Art and Arcana. Uh, this is a book written by Michael Whitwer, Kyle Newman, John Peterson, and uh, Sam Whitwer, and it is what it is. What, what the title says, it is. It is a complete history of Dungeons and Dragons told through its visual history, and it um, it is comprehensive. It is a heavy book. It's a dense book full of image uh, photographs and art and lots and lots of te- text taking you through the entire history of D&D from its earliest inspirations all the way up to today, more or less. And I'm a big RPG fan, as I've noted on this podcast before. Uh, I love role-playing games. Uh, and even though I'm not the biggest d fan, I think there are the systems I prefer. It is just you know, it's a cultural touchstone for this corner of the world. And this book is just comprehensive. It is, I'm digging through it and having a great time with it. There's so much to learn, so much to see. It explores what influenced D&D, what D&D has influenced, uh, and everything in between. And I like the Mario book. It's a book you can actually pick up and read and like really enjoy and dig into. It is a full meal of a book. It's, it's a lot more expensive. It's um, $50 normally, 34 on Amazon right now. But if you're a fan of D&D or if you're even just a fan of fantasy and want like to understand the impact uh, that the fantasy genre has gone through since the creation of this game, it is a really riveting and very cool book.
2: See, I'm not a fan of fantasy or D anD D, but I am friends with Kyle Newman, so I I got this book, Jacob, and I've been looking through it. It's 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 a wonderful coffee table book. Like you can just have this on your coffee table uh, for people like that, or you know, just to look through. Like there's just some great art and some some great stuff in there. Um, Jacob,
0: has it uh, inspired you? Are you still a, a dungeon master? Do you still like host your own game?
3: Yeah, I, I try to. Like I said, I don't host a lot of D and D. I attend d and D game as a player, but for my hosting time, I prefer other systems. Like there are games, I, there are there are game systems that I prefer hosting far more than D and D. But D and D is still, you know, it's it's the go-to. It's the one that people know the most. The one that gets most people into the hobby and it's the one that um is doing better now than it's ever done in the past so it is
0: like has this book given you any inspiration for like the way that you can approach different things like reading all of that all of that history has it like uh i guess given you any um yeah like different approaches or like um uh new ideas for ways to um to participate in the story um
3: i wouldn't say anything extreme like it's like I said, it's just a lot of D&D art, a lot of dragons, a lot of castles, a lot of knights fighting monsters. So um, there's nothing in here that, like, struck me in a, in a way that said, oh, that inspires how I'm going to run um, a Dungeon World game, which is a game I, a game system I but, prefer if, you, if, you, if you like this kind of game.
2: It's interesting to see, like, the early days of D&D and, like, how, like, the dungeon master had to have a piece of graph paper to graph yeah. out, like, the dungeon and where everybody was and stuff. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really cool history thing. I mean, there are actual guides and books about game design, about running games, and about how to work with players that I find more useful for getting inspiration and for becoming a better DM. Mm-hmm. But as somebody, but as a, but for, for pop culture history, for like, in, in a, for like an artifact that's going to explore how this came to be and how it was built from a historical perspective, it's extremely useful. But it, I I can't say it gave me inspiration, but it's it's a very cool book nonetheless. Cool.
2: Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. I'll start things off. I showed Kitra The Conjuring for the first time. She had not seen it. Uh, she had just watched uh, The Haunting of Hill House, and we had gone to The Conjuring uh, haunted house on the uh, Warner Brothers Horror Made Here uh, event. So uh, she was interested in it, and uh, she loved it. And uh, it it's, it, I don't know, The Conjuring is just so good. I'm not usually a fan of of you know uh exorcisms and people taking over other bodies and that kind of stuff but uh i I guess the movie doesn't get into that until very later it's just so well executed i'm just such, such a fan of what james does with this movie and how you know he kind of shows you the entire layout of this house and like this breathtaking one shot and i don't know it's just such a good movie um, but uh, we were also on a kind of horror kick. So we had on demand, we we had uh, Eli Roth is doing the series on AMC called the history of horror. And uh, this is basically just him interviewing. People. I, I guess it's kind of like, what James uh, Cameron did was the history of sci-fi. Uh, so it's him interviewing like all these big people from Stephen King to filmmakers to, you know, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, whatever. And uh, we, we were just watching the two episodes that are the history of the slasher movies, uh, which is, uh, I don't know. I, I I know it's, it's made for general audiences. It's, you know, it's made for, you know, cable TV. So it's like, you know, you can't get too deep into it because I, I think, I think it's like an hour long episode each so it's spending only 2 hours on the history of slasher films is a very condensed thing to do but uh it was enjoyable and it, it kind of uh hit some itches and I I'm, I'm, I'm now I actually want to go revisit the scream films. Uh Chris, have you watched any of these episodes?
4: I have not because I really don't like Eli Roth, so that's what's that's <laughs> he, what's turning me off checking it. Actually, out.
6: Actually, t- I'll will tell you actually Eli Roth's presence is not nearly as prominent as James Cameron's was in the other AMC Visionary series. Yeah. He uh, he appears in uh, some roundtable discussion like uh, when they're talking about stuff here and there, but he's not doing interviews with the subjects in the same way that James Cameron did in the sci-fi version. So it's I think you can get by with watching it and even with
4: your dis- distaste for Eli Roth. All right, then yeah, maybe I will check it out now that I know that.
2: Yeah, I'll check it out. I don't think it's going to tell you anything you don't know, but it has some, you know, good people like Edgar Wright, uh, you know, comment- giving commentary on some of these films that he loved. And uh yeah, Eli Roth, I think he only does some voiceover stuff and then he's maybe in like 5% of the overall thing. Uh but it's enjoyable. I've uh we also started watching The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on netflix so this is an adaptation of the archie comic sabrina the teenage witch uh this is not the sabrina that you knew from what was that nickelodeon show
6: no it's abc
2: abc yeah um this is a more adult version of it it's uh the actress who played sally from Mad Men. i don't have her name for
5: me Shipka.
2: yeah and um You know what? The production design, the art design, the costume design, this show looks fantastic. Uh, It's uh, an interesting update. It very much seems like it has influences from Harry Potter, like very obvious influences. And I've only watched one episode. I'm going to keep on watching. It's not uh, great, but it's uh, good. And um, it's definitely, you know, uh, it doesn't feel like, you know, the CW... not, Not to... (laughs) <laughs> not to disparage Riverdale, but uh, you know it feels more like a Netflix show than it does a CW show. Um, have any of you guys seen this show yet?
4: Well, I it have. Has. Yeah, I yeah. have because I reviewed it for us, and I, I talked about it before. And yeah, I, I agree. It, it's good, not great. the The production value is fantastic, but some of the uh, the writing and the acting is not as uh, good as it could be.
2: HD, have you seen anything?
5: No, I'm planning to watch it, though, because I am a fan of Riverdale. Uh, At least I kind of am. I haven't caught up with Season 2. But I've been really interested in watching this. I just haven't had, I guess, the time to see it yet.
2: Um, And uh, I also... We started watching The Sinner Season 1. I I I talked a few weeks back about watching The Sinner Season 2. This is an anthology series that's on USA Network. It basically tells in the first you know few minutes of an episode you see this you know horrific crime happen and it's basically uh them trying to figure out why it happened for the whole season um season two was a lot more compelling than season one thus far season one is a little bit slower uh it uh I don't know and it's also weird it it, it seems to be more a Obsessed with sex? I don't know. It, it, it's, um, I'm not sure if we're going to make it through all of season one, but I, I would highly recommend The Sinner season two on U- USA Network. You can watch it on demand. Uh, you don't have to watch uh, season one to get into season two. Uh, and I, I should also mention that um, one of my friends who I went to uh, the, the haunts this weekend with, Joe, uh, mention that he's a, a big listener of this podcast he of course loves ht and chris so there you go oh, yeah thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah and uh i guess uh chris what have you been watching
4: uh i finally caught up on two films from this year that i just hadn't had a chance to see yet uh one was incredibles 2 which i thought was okay i mean visually it's fantastic there's some action stuff in this film that is incredible and you know that's that's not so shocking just because brad bird is pretty much very well known for his his very action-packed animation and you know the way the camera you know quote unquote the camera moves over shots as characters are running around and stuff I i was really impressed with that but the story itself didn't do uh, that much for me. I, th- you know, I, uh, I'm one of those weirdos who doesn't think the first Incredibles is like the best Pixar movie ever. I, I usually see people say that, and it it isn't. I don't even think it's in like my top five of Pixar films. But I, I do like it. I don't love it. So maybe that's why I wasn't as. Blown away by this, as some people think it is, but you know it, it is what it is. I thought it's probably because he's he's aging a bit, but I thought Craig T. Nelson's voice sounded very frail, and that really distracted me. Like it just sounded like this old man's voice coming out of Mister Incredible, and, I, and that, that just seemed really weird to me.
2: Um Yeah, I was more war, war, uh, I was more bothered by Mrs. Incredible's voice. Like it sounded so much different to me.
4: Really, I thought that sounded the same. I thought Holly, Holly Hunter pretty
2: much sounds the same now as she sounded her whole career. I don't know. Uh, um, But your opinion in this movie kind of reflects uh, me and Ben. Um, I know Brad... Jacob, were you a huge fan of this film?
3: Yeah, I like it quite a bit. I mean, I'm not sure if I like it as much as the first one, but I think it's
2: really good. And I know Brad was a huge fan of this this sequel. Uh, Brad, just as a counterpoint, what did did Chris, Ben, and... And I miss like what? What what are we missing? (laughs) Uh, I mean, we've we've talked about this before. I just
6: I feel like I don't know. Maybe you just weren't invested in I don't know the characters as much this time. Maybe too much time has passed. For for me, I just I found a lot to like about how the dynamic of the family shifted. You know, even in you know such a short period of time. Like I feel like the kids have to take a little bit more responsibility. I think Mister Incredible still has lessons to learn. Like the first movie was all about you know him realizing that he can't be the hero that he used to be um and this one is like he can't you know do everything by himself but it's in a different way and so I, I some people have criticized the movie for um having the same kind of uh i guess lesson for you know mr incredible to learn that you thought he learned in the first one But i think it's different this time because it's much more family centric um and yeah i don't know i just i i liked it and i i like Chris said, the the action in this movie is incredible. There's some action in this movie that I think rivals some of the biggest, you know, expensive tent poles. It's just it's
4: so well crafted.
2: No, I agree with you on the action uh, point, uh, Chris. You also finally got to see Sorry to bother you.
4: Yes, I did, uh, and that was good. I I don't think I loved it as much as everyone else did. Like I, you know, when it when people first saw it at Sundance, it seemed like this like this sea change where it was like the most uh revolutionary movie ever made and it, it's definitely one of the year's best films it's definitely uh as crazy as i heard it was because there's this you know third act twist that i don't think anyone will see coming if they you know go into this movie cold but i i, I thought it was like maybe 10 or 15 minutes too long like it started to sort of drag in the middle and it started to keep like repeating itself but for being uh boots riley it's like first feature film this is pretty amazing that this is like the first feature he made and he, he more or less knocked it out of the park right away it's it's definitely uh one of the year's most unique films I, and i liked how unapologetically political it was like the trailers sold it as pretty much this wacky comedy and you know it has comedy in it but it's a lot more political a lot more social commentary
2: than a lot of uh the marketing let on so i, I really appreciated that for sure. And uh, J- Jacob, you finally finished The Haunting of Hill House.
3: Uh, yeah, last week I only watched the first episode. I wasn't sold yet. But since then, I've watched the entire series. And I think it may be my new favorite show of the year. Um, I think it's more or less perfect <laughs> from beginning to end. Uh, I, I, I I take issue with it being called The Haunting of Hill House since it does stray so far from the source novel. But it's so good at being what it actually is, which is... A incredibly nuanced and heartbreaking and realistic portrait of family dysfunction, except where the source of that dysfunction is an incredibly scary haunted house they all grew up in. And so the, the flashbacks to, the, to, the, to their childhood where they're just being haunted by these really malicious ghosts and then the, the modern day scenes where they deal with their baggage, they eventually combine, but, up to, but they work together separately so well. Like I, I was an equally invested in both timelines. And Mike Flanagan, who directed the whole series and ran, and ran the writer's room, I've been a fan of his uh, for a long time now. He did uh, Gerald's Game and Oculus and Hush, and this is very much his voice. I mean, it's his his, his brand of jump scares, very effective. His his type of mood, his attention to character detail, um, and his sentimentality. I mean, the, the conclusion of the show is actually very positive in a weird way and very life-affirming for a show that's so full of death and uh, family dysfunction, and at Plays out in a lot of his movies, sometimes to a fault, but it works here. And I'll all say leave it here. say Episode Six, which t- which is shot in only a handful of very long shots, should be a gimmick and it should play like a gimmick, but it's actually just flat out intense and upsetting, and it, it fluctuates between haunted house, um uh spookablast in the past, and. Um, really really upsetting unsettling family reunion in the present all in a handful of shots like fluctuating between times uh, and breaking the bounds of physicality with the camera moving back and forth through time without uh, without like cuts and it's just a remarkable thing to watch and I know they have not announced season 2 yet and if they do it'll follow different characters but as like a standalone 10 hour full meal like I feel completely satisfied it, it is uh, it's everything I wanted out of a 10 episode horror series
2: See, I'm, I'm upset with myself. Like, I, I watched the first episode, and I was like, this is not for me. And uh, my girlfriend, Ketra, ended up watching the rest of the show and had the same reaction as you, that this is her first favorite show of this year. <laughs> uh, so now I feel like the dumbass who uh, didn't, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe I'm going to have to give this a try, because another yeah. try, because that first episode just was not anything I cared about.
3: It's a little bit of table setting there. They're they're kind of like letting you in slowly. I'd say by episode three, which is each each of the first five episodes is a, a focused on one character, and each character as you go in is a character who's essentially had a worse and worse experience in the house. So the first five episodes go from being the the oldest son who's kind of like ah the house wasn't bad. We, we it was just a spooky house. To the fifth episode where the uh, where the character. Uh, had, like, the absolute hellish experience that destroys her life. (laughs) So the first five episodes kind of lure you into um, letting you know just how bad things are episode by episode. Maybe give another one or two and see if it grows on you.
2: And just from a cinematography uh, perspective, I'm so interested in the episode six. I've heard so many people talk about it. And I I love one-shots, and I love what uh, Sam Esmail did last season with uh, Mr. Robot. They did a whole episode in, like, you know, one seamlessly edited together, one take. Uh, so I, maybe I'm going to have to give it a try. Uh, and you've also been watching more of a ER, which you've been talking oh, about.
3: Oh, n- nonstop ER. This is my weekly ER update. I think I may have to start talking at least a few sentences about ER every week just to let you know where I am. And I'm nearing the end of season seven. And, Peter, I have strong opinions on season seven. Uh, this is where the sh- – like, I was warned that season six is where the show kind of uh, climaxes and, and stops being the golden age of VR. And I wonder what that meant. And now deep in season seven, I now know what it means to be in the silver age of VR as opposed to the golden age. And that means a lot more bombast, a lot more massive plot lines, a lot more massive disasters hitting the hospital every episode. I really enjoy the early seasons because it's are so mundane. Like the, the big disasters happen once or twice a season and so much of the episodes deal with the mundanity of working in the ER, of how frustrating and sad and tragic it can be, but also how funny and weird and, and thrilling it can be. Whereas now every episode has to have a massive tragedy or a massive plotline or a shootout in the ER waiting room or a disaster of some kind that wreaks havoc in everybody's lives. And when the show slows down, it's so good. Like there's an episode where a character has main character has brain surgery and it treats it as like a genuinely terrifying experience and it really kind of buckles down and it lets you into his headspace and it's a really really good tv and the show is still totally watchable but i can definitely see why this is where the show stopped being like must see tv back in the day and started being just a an old favorite as opposed to being a a thing that was actually driving what tv could be at the time
2: see i'm, I'm so jealous of what you're doing with er is like I'm, I'm in the place that i'm you know in peak tv where i'm watching you know binge watching through a a season of T V and then going on to the next season of TV I can binge watch through and I want to have I wanna be able to go find something that has, you know, a bunch of different seasons and actually sit down for a bunch of weeks and make you know, make my way through that one that one T V entity. But ER does not uh interest me in the least. Uh
5: you know what series you could do, Peter? What? Doctor Who. Doctor Who, I know. I know. <laughs>
3: Uh, but you know what, Peter, uh, I would recommend at least watching the pilot for ER and here's why because uh, it was written as a screenplay by, by Michael Crichton the author of Jurassic Park and the pilot still plays like a 90-minute movie it's, it's a 90-minute um, TV pilot and it was going to be directed by Steven Spielberg and they shot it as a pilot almost unchanged from the, from the film script so it could be fun as, a, as an experiment to watch just a 90-minute pilot and imagine as a theatrical release Spielberg movie, you know, as opposed to the TV pilot, and just to see if you like it, and just to do that thought game. And if you don't like it, you don't watch it anymore, and have, and have that knowledge. But if you do like it, maybe you'll, it'll grow on you.
2: That's interesting. Jacob, is the initial seasons of ER shot in HD or is that standard definition four by three?
3: Um, they were cropped to 4x3 uh, for initial broadcast, but the version on Hulu have been restored to full widescreen. They were shot widescreen, cropped for TV, and now they've been um, – so every, everything's now widescreen now. It looks really good. I and mean, It was shot in film back in the day, so it it, it holds up.
2: Huh. Maybe I'll have to check it out because I, I do have a problem with that, and I did kind of give up on West Wing and, and going back and watching those initial seasons in standard definition. I just can't make my way through it. It's just <laughs> – I don't know. I feel like one of those assholes who's like, I can't watch a black and white movie because it's in black and white, but I don't know. It just, it just looks like video for I don't know. But uh yeah. Maybe I'll give it a try. Uh Brad, what have you been watching lately?
6: Uh not much, but I did take the time to watch uh something on my flight over here to Utah. Um a friend of mine told me that the new Adam Sandler Netflix special was actually funny. And I was like, hmm. Uh, so I downloaded <laughs> it. I downloaded it, and put it on my iPad. Um, and coming from somebody who has disliked pretty much all Adam Sandler comedies post Big Daddy um, and has really only enjoyed his turns and things like Punch Drunk Love and Spanglish uh, since then, I just. I don't know, didn't think Adam Sandler really could be funny again or anything or anything like that. But this stand-up special is surprisingly good. It is full of all new stuff. It's a mix of him doing stand-up and doing some of his uh, goofy original songs that he used to do on Saturday Night Live. It has the spirit of the comedy albums that he put out in the 90s. Um, it's definitely got a little bit of immaturity to it, for sure, as you know Adam Sandler always has. But it's it's surprisingly funny. I found myself really enjoying it. And there's even a part towards the end that I actually tear it up because the um the one of the songs he does is really touching and it's just fantastic. I was supremely impressed with the stand special. and it's it really feels like he it's some of the energy that he brought to funny people that made him so good in that movie. and i I wish he would keep doing stuff like this and ch- try and channel this into making better movies because, like, if he can do stuff like this, I don't know why he's not putting more effort into making, you know, better comedies.
2: So, if you had to give us a rating from one percent freshness to a hundred percent freshness, how fresh <laughs> is this special?
6: I, I would, I would probably give it
2: like a, like a
6: ninety percent fresh.
2: I would say. So you should have called it ninety percent fresh. Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. uh, ben, what have you been
0: watching? Uh, I've been watching a bunch of stuff. I caught up with Streets of Fire, the 1984 movie directed by Walter Hill. Uh, has anybody ever seen this film? It's
3: one of the least boring movies ever made. It's so <laughs> yeah. good. I love this movie, Ben. <laughs> that
0: is a really, really great way of describing it. I had never seen this before. I think I saw a trailer uh, like five years ago. And I added it to my Netflix queue, the the disc queue, and it finally arrived in the mail. And I was like, Oh yeah, Streets of Fire. I, I guess I need to check this out. And this movie is kind of nuts. It's like it's a mixture of, um, like the Marlon Brando movie, The Wild One, but also like through this uh like rain soaked um <laughs> like 1980s musical action comedy kind of lens. It's it's so many genres thrown into one thing. Um, Willem Dafoe plays the bad guy, and it's it's one of the rare times I've ever seen a young Willem Dafoe, and it's kind of unnerving to see. Uh, Diane Lane is in it. Um, Rick Moranis is in it. A young Amy Madigan. I mean, the the cast is pretty good, except for Michael Perret, who was like the lead guy. I, I was not really a big fan of his performance, but uh, stylistically, this movie is all over the place. Like I mentioned, it's this huge mishmash of genres, and it's like this guy. It's like a lot of. It's it's almost like they they tried to make um like uh you know how like Raiders of the Lost Ark is is inspired by old school serials uh it, it's it's a movie Streets of Fire is a movie that feels like it's inspired by I don't know, like like some long lost art form that uh, that Walter Hill just discovered one day and was like, <laughs> we have to make uh, a movie, we have to adapt this into a movie because it's it's unlike anything I've ever seen. They call it a rock and roll fable in the opening credits, uh, and it, it, they say it takes place in another time, another place, and it it really feels like that. It, it's the kind of movie that I wish I would have seen when I was ten because I feel like it would have really gotten into my bones and like formed who I was as a person back then. Because when you're a young film fan uh, and you find something so unique... Um, or at least speaking for me anyway, I used to like latch on to stuff like that and really, um, you know, let it, let it sink in. And this movie feels like that to me. I don't really know if I would say it's a great movie, but at the same time, I have to admire the audacity of it. And I wish stuff like this would come out more all the time. I mean, watching it now, it seems impossible that a movie like this would ever be made in today's, uh, risk averse, um, Hollywood, but Um, there's a lot to enjoy here. If you're a fan of, um, of just, you know, having your jaw on the floor at the fact that, uh, crazy
3: stuff like this was made. Um, (laughs) does anybody else have anything to say about Streets of Fire? That Jim Steinman soundtrack is amazing. All the Jim Steinman songs, I I have them on loop in my car sometimes. They're so good. It's just, I, man, I'm so glad you saw this movie. It's one of my favorites. Um, (laughs) and, and, Walter Hill had a whole series plan. He wanted to make it into a franchise of movies, and the first one bombed so badly that Walter Hill never made a big budget movie again. But it, it is, it, yeah, it, it is as far from reality as Lord of the Rings. But it's still still set in like a city full of bikers, but with Western tropes and meatloaf-esque songs and power ballads and neon lights and rain and so much rain.
2: Yeah. Oh it's... god,
3: man, I'm I'm so thrilled <laughs> you brought this movie up.
2: <laughs> you guys are making me want to watch this so bad. I've never seen this film.
0: Man, it, and it, like the entire thing is shot on a back lot and it it looks and feels like it. And a lot of times to me, that's that's like a negative thing. Like it sort of feels like it's doing the movie an injustice, but it's perfect for this movie for some reason. It's it's so strange. Uh, Chris, do you what, what do you think about Streets of Fire?
4: Yeah, I, I don't think I can add anything more than what you just said. It's it's um, made right from the start. Like if I like I was sort of in the same is I had never seen it. And then a few years ago, I watched it. And literally, as it starts, it just starts with that first song. And I was immediately like, oh, this is the best movie ever made. Like, this (laughs) this movie is like, I'm two minutes into this and I I can already tell I'm going to love this movie. And it just gets better from there. And I love that Rick Moranis is in it playing like a serious character, even though he's wearing like a goofy bow tie. It's just such a strange, (laughs) entertaining movie. And I wish... Like you said, the only thing I don't like about it is the lead guy is really dull and I wish like they had recast that part because then it would be
0: even better. But beyond that, I, this movie is incredible. Um, also, I saw The Mummy from 1959. This is the British uh, movie, not the original Universal Pictures one. Um, this was just on TCM and I had never seen it, so I DVR'd it and watched it with my wife. And I, I was excited because I saw that it starred Christopher Lee and Christopher Lee plays the mummy and the bad news is that He's so buried under, uh, you know, scrolls and and, uh, whatever mummy paraphernalia he has to wear that um, that you really you don't really get much Christopher Lee out of this film, which was a real shame because I, you know, being a, a fan of his I was hoping to see him sort of let loose but he's very restrained and there's not really much of him there you do get a good lead performance from Peter Cushing who I know primarily from Star Wars and um, it, this was one of the first things I think that I'd seen him in outside of that um I'm sure I've, I've seen him in a, a couple things here and there but this was like one of the first movies that I've seen where he was like the the pure lead of the film um I don't I don't know I mean I guess it's it's an interesting timepiece and I know that a lot of these British horror movies, uh, have a special place in a lot of people's hearts, but you know coming to it so late and and um, not being as impressed with uh, with Christopher Lee's work as I was hoping to be in it um, or at least the characterization, not necessarily his work he he did what he could with this role but um I don't know I, I feel like maybe uh, it, it might just be Better to to skip this one entirely and just go back to the 1932 version. Um, Jacob, I know you're a big fan of like the the Hammer films and and Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in this whole era. Um,
3: what do you think about this version of the Mummy? Have you seen this one? Yeah, I think it's okay. Uh, I think the problem is that this was from a time period when Christopher Lee was a bit embarrassed to be making horror movies. Like famously he ass have most of his dialogue is dracula removed from the script because he's embarrassed to say it which actually leads to his dracula being this monstrous figure who doesn't speak and becomes important to how he plays him uh but yeah was, this was from an era where christopher lee hasn't quite embraced being christopher lee that we know and love quite yet he's he's partially there but yeah I think this isn't as good as other hammer movies from around this era uh you'll find better cushing and lee movies i mean it's totally fine but in terms of mummy movies the universal one is still my favorite
0: yeah, and I, I actually even like the printed Fraser one better than this, which may be sacrilege to some people, but uh, I, I find a lot to enjoy with that Stephen Summers movie from like the late 90s. But uh, and then also I started Maniac. I think I'm seven episodes into that show, the Carrie Fukunaga show with uh, Emma Stone and Jonah Hill. This is one of the only TV shows that I've watched without knowing really anything about it other than the people that are involved. And I have to say that it's like the ideal way for me to watch the show because I, without knowing anything about the premise, even um, going in and being sucked into this world has been kind of an amazing experience. It's like one of my favorite TV experiences so far this year, just because I have no idea what's going to happen next. It's one of those shows where the genres hop around so much and you're not entirely sure what's real uh, the whole time. But the the style of it, the production design, the look, the acting. I mean, I'm a huge fan of pretty much everything that I've seen so far. Um, like I said, I think I have like three episodes left until it's over and it's supposed to be just a limited series. So I don't think it's going to be coming back for a second season. But um, if you somehow have, have not seen anything of, or heard <laughs> anything about maniac, um, I, I would definitely recommend it. I'm I'm hoping that it sticks the landing because I've really enjoyed everything that's that, uh, that I, I've seen in the, through the first seven episodes.
2: See, th- that's another series I give up on. Not because like everything you're saying, I agree with Ben. Like, <laughs> The the world building is amazing, the acting, the production design, it's all incredible, but it's like such a weird off putting story and character. Like I just wasn't finding my grip on it. That How sense. far
0: into it did you get?
2: I think we only watched two episodes.
0: OK, yeah. I mean, once you start getting into, I think, three, four five, that's when it starts really changing genres and, and playing with the form in interesting ways. Um, and I, I guess I was just hooked on uh, the characters a little bit earlier. And if you're not, I can totally see how you would want to tap out. But um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I can convince you to, to go <laughs> back and and continue, especially when you have all these other things to watch, Peter. But um, for anybody else listening out there, uh, I would say Maniac is definitely worth watching. And then very briefly, I just wanted to mention last night I saw a screening of Barry Jenkins new movie If Beale Street Could Talk and this film is totally gorgeous I mean it's it's completely heartbreaking the story that it tells I don't even re- want to talk about the story the, the premise just in case you're able to go into it uh fresh and, and not know anything but it's very clear to me that um I, you know having watched like movies like uh In the Mood for Love it seems like that kind of Uh, visual that sumptuous visual style was very influential for Barry Jenkins here and it is like one of the most gorgeously shot films that you'll see this year Um, I think this movie is like it's sensual in a way that American films uh, often are not and it's uh, it kind of took me by surprise in that way but it's it's so human and real and um, tragic and uh, the performances are all great I mean it's. I think it's one of my favorite movies of the year, even though it's kind of difficult to watch at times. And, um, it's, man, it's uh, yeah. There's a lot to talk about with this film, so I hope everybody gets a chance to see it. Um, so we can have a maybe
2: a longer discussion about it later on. Very cool. Uh, and HT, what have you been
5: watching? So I got a chance to see Suspiria this weekend because it was playing in select theaters in uh, New York and it expands wide later this weekend. But this is a movie that I felt (laughs) fundamentally changed coming out of, I guess you could say. It's, uh, It's something that I felt like I needed to sit with but at the same time it's so revolting and grotesque in so many ways that I didn't want to let it marinate in my mind too much for fear of it just like <laughs> damaging me um it is interesting cuz I saw the original Suspiria um in a in like my college film class several years ago and that was a movie that uh really transfixed me just because of how visually gorgeous and stunning it was and this is also before I became a horror fan Um, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't really see it as a horror film in a sense. I kind of, I saw it as this really beautiful, uh, really disturbing in a ways like European art house film. And this, uh, Luca Guadagnino's film is nothing at all like it. Uh, it's this incredible, incredibly bleak reversal of this, of, uh, Dario Argento's movie, um, that feels, is more like loosely inspired by it rather than being a remake. And, um, it has a very different approach uh, that um, I still haven't have yet to make heads or tails of. It's definitely a film that film that you want to just uh, sit with a little bit before you make your final judgment. Um, I'm not even sure if I really liked it. I was like, okay, this is this is a film. This is an experience. It's definitely experience, and it's interesting too because it kind of has a similar um, uh, like narrative. Ah, uh, momentum. As for example, last year's very divisive Mother. In that the first two thirds are very slow, and the action doesn't really kick into gear until like halfway through the film, and then the last third just completely goes off the rails in a way that I really appreciated. But I just um, I don't know how to what to make of it overall. I I'm I think that people should go see it because it's definitely unlike a lot of films that you'll you'll see out in theaters today, but. I want to know, like, has anyone else here seen it?
3: Yeah, I know Chris and I have. I know I've spoken on the podcast uh, during our Fatsky Fest coverage about it, and I think it's one of the best movies of the year, but it's also a film I've been grappling with because it is challenging by design. But Chris, have you talked about this on the podcast today? I want to hear your thoughts.
4: I might have talked about it. I'm not 100% sure, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty much in the same boat where uh, this movie is is pretty insane. It is a lot like Mother in that, I can tell people are either going to really like this, or they're going to like hate it with the fire of a thousand suns. Like I can, I can tell that this is not going to be a movie for everyone. I I really liked it. just the 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 skill on display here. I love the way it's edited. Like the the first hour or so is filled with these really really quick cuts that are not like most movies a day where it's literally like a cut, like every few seconds to different angles. And it it, it can be jarring if you're not used to that, but it, it worked really well for me. And um, the last like half hour is just uh, pure, pure madness, just over the top madness. And again, I know there are going to people who, be people who really loathe this movie. Like they're going to walk out and, be like, that's the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> but for me, it it worked. It worked really well. Yeah. And it, it, it's going to be on my best of list somewhere. I'm just not sure where yet.
5: I was actually really fascinated because I saw it in a packed theater and there were no walkouts, even though there are se- several several times where i'm sure i could feel the audience around me just being like what is going on but everyone stayed and everyone just kind of like nervously clapped at the end too they're were, they're were all in and um i'm interested to see like how this plays when it goes wide because it's definitely uh just a, a very challenging film like jacob said and i to go off what chris was saying too it plays luca guadagnino plays with like his cuts and his editing in a way that Argento played with color. This really bold and just weird uh, technique that is so memorable. Um, there are a lot of threads that I'm not sure work together, but um like there's a whole political subplot, which I was kind of confused as. but overall, i I will say, I think I enjoyed it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I would actually recommend Googling the German Autumn before you go see Suspiria if you, if you, if you aren't familiar with Berlin in 1977 because had to do some research after the fact to appreciate what the movie's getting at. Because the original movie is set in 1977 by default and in Germany because that's just where it's set. So then this one actually says, what was life actually like in Germany in 1977? It actually ingrains those politics into the plot in a way that requires some homework to fully appreciate. So that's the kind of movie it is. And if that sounds like fun, then you will like this
2: movie. (laughs) I'm so fearing that I'm not going to like this movie. And I I think I'm just going to avoid it, guys. I think it's best for everybody involved (laughs) to avoid this movie. But, uh, you know, we've gotten to the point in the podcast where we find out what has Brad been eating this week?
6: I've been eating some great things because I'm in Utah and my lovely girlfriend Brittany has been showing me around to some hot spots. Um, We stopped by this amazing place for brunch called Five Seeds, uh, which is over in Park City. It's actually... Close to where the the liquor store is that we hit up whenever when we get together for the blogger party and we go to the one place where they actually have hard liquor in Park City. Um,
2: and it wait is, wait wait. So do you eat like do you have five varieties of seeds that you get to choose from? That's exactly what it is. It's
6: just seeds, and you just eat five different seeds. That's it. It's uh, it's it's underwhelming. So sorry about that. Uh no it is
2: <laughs> I was in shock here
6: no no it is it is um it's Australian owned apparently this couple from Melbourne uh, runs it and uh, they're very well known for their brunch and that's that's what we went there for and so we um got uh, pu- pulled pork Benedict which was absolutely heavenly and then we split uh this uh, tim tam French toast um if you've ever had tim tams they're this um, like uh, British, I think it's British anyway, or maybe it is Australian, but it's this uh, a biscuit if you uh, or cookie for for Americans that is covered in chocolate and they have different different flavors of it. And so they made French toast and they put Tim Tim on it, and then they ha- had this like uh, chocolate like kind of like frosting on it. And it was everything here was, was so good. And um, one thing that's cool about it is because it's also Australian owned, they also have different flavors of Bundaberg soda uh bundaberg is also uh, an australian owned soda company and um they you can find bundaberg ginger beer here in the united states at certain stores but it's not the easiest thing to find necessarily and they have a bunch of fruit flavors that you can't get in the united states unless you pay a lot to import it so but since this place is australian owned they had uh like the guava flavor and the peach flavor so i got a peach bundaberg while i was there and that was that was fantastic as well so it's um if we have time actually when we go to Sundance in January, we should make a, a stop there for a meal because it is—it's definitely worth stopping. It, it,
2: it's so good. Very cool. Have you been trying any like weird, uh, you know, flavored stuff this week?
6: I have. Well, before I we get to that though, I also went to a place called Waffle Love, which, as you might guess, is known for its great waffles. Um, and they have they had uh, spectacular chicken waffles, and then we also had one that it's a banana cream pie. Waffle, where if the inside of the waffle has chocolate in it, but and then there's a bunch of banana slices and, and whipped cream on top, and uh, it's it's just amazing. Like it's the, easily the best waffles that I've had, and their chicken was f- phenomenal too. They have this great chicken dipping sauce that's kind of like fry sauce, but a little bit, um, I guess, it has a little bit more of a spice to it, I guess. Um, but yeah, those two places the um were were fantastic, and they're great finds here. In Utah. And then I I was able to find while I was here at the grocery store, Three Musketeers has a new flavor that is a a birthday cake kind of flavor. And I'm not the biggest fan of artificial birthday cake flavor. It usually just doesn't work well for me. But I was curious because Three Musketeers usually doesn't do different flavors um, that often. I don't even remember when they've done one before. So I was interested to try it, and it was honestly just okay. It was like kind of a bland birthday cake flavor, and it really didn't do much to make me like Three Musketeers any more than just like an okay candy bar. Um, So yeah, but it was so it was it was just it's whatever, you know. If you like the original Three Musketeers, you probably won't really like this one much more.
2: (laughs) See, I I keep wanting birthday cake flavored things to to actually taste like birthday cake, but they never do. It's always disappointing.
6: yeah, I think it's hard. To, it's a hard flavor to capture, um, but I don't know. I, I'm i not the biggest fan of generic birthday cake anyway, so maybe that's where, where my problem lies.
2: Okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, I heard you got your hands on Red Dead Redemption 2.
3: Yes, I have, and I unfortunately don't have a whole lot to say just yet. It is a massive game, uh, both in terms of the game itself and in terms of how well it did at its opening week of release. I mean, in the headlines today, were saying it had the biggest launch for any piece of entertainment in history uh, in terms of money made. And that's what you get from a, from a Rockstar game, a company that makes also the Grand Theft Auto games and just spend seven or eight years making a game and the results are always something spectacular in some way. And Red Dead Redemption 2 is a Western. set in 1899. It's an open world game where there's a massive map you can explore every nook and cranny. And the game, if you just focus on the story and avoided exploring, avoided subplots, avoided side quests, avoided optional things just to have fun and character customization, it's still a 60-hour game at its core. So I'm only a few hours into it. I'm still at the point of the game where it's still keeping me on a tight leash. It's still teaching me all of its systems. It's still teaching me how to ride and care for my horse, how to uh, dress and bathe, how to go hunting to feed my uh, camp of fellow outlaws, how to engage in combat, how to take care of my guns, how to... Um, uh, interact with the world. It's 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 pretty much cowboy simulated the game. Uh, each animation is rendered like in, a, in beautiful realism. So your character does not open a when your character goes to open a drawer. It's not like a video game where the drawer opens quickly and all stuff and it goes in your pockets. It is a game where your character has a full animation for opening the drawer, a full animation <laughs> for reaching in, taking what's in there, putting it in his pocket. When you loot a dead body, someone you killed, it's not just walking over and getting ammo. It's you go down the body, you lift it up you pat it down, and this may seem frustrating, and I was frustrated for a little bit at first, but I started getting into the game's rhythm. I started realizing that it wants me to take my time. It wants me to uh, value each action I take. Uh, it's not like I can get into a massive gun battle and hang around, get all the goods, and run away and be fine. It wants me to say how much time do I want to spend over these dead bodies and hoping nobody sees me and goes "You're running at the marshal, because that, that can happen. Um, but like I said, I'm still early enough that the game still teaches me how to play. It is still... And in the five or six opening hours where it's saying, here are the many, many things you need to know to actually enjoy and appreciate Red Dead 2. Uh, but I'm I'm on board. Like Red Dead 1 is probably my if not my favorite, in my top three favorite games of all time. And I'm all I'm always at for Rockstar ones to cook up. I know they've been in the headlines recently for um, some really unfair labor practices, um, uh, making their workers crunch in ways that are very controversial. And that's always in my mind where I'm seeing how complex and beautifully made this game is. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the amount of attention this game is getting uh, only widens that attention, so Rockstar and other companies take notice and say we can create games of this quality and treat our employees like human beings as well. So it's, I've been dealing with that uh, moral quandary. But on a um, other note, a very different game. I played uh, Jackbox Party Pack 5. I think I've talked about the Jackbox games in the podcast before. They're, uh, they're made by the people who made the old you know, Jack games, the old trivia games from the 90s and 2000s. But now they make sort of a, these variety packs of various mini games that you can play with your phone on any video game console. So You don't need controllers. All you need is a PlayStation, an Xbox, a PC, or a Nintendo Switch. You fire up one of these volumes of games, and everybody at the party or everybody at the gathering can pull their phone and they can play on their screen or on their laptop or on their tablet. And sometimes it's trivia games. Sometimes it's like it's like drawing games. Uh, very silly, very funny. Uh, sometimes outrageous and offensive by design. But I've, I've saved so many parties with Jackbox, and Jackbox, Party, 5, Jackbox uh, Party Pack 5 is another one that seems to be a winner. The early winner so far is a game where you have robot rap battles, where a Mad Libs-style thing asks you to name like, a celebrity or name an action name a day of the week. Then it writes a partial rap rhyme for you it's just the finish then your robots rap at each other using those robot Siri voices, so it's so it's very very silly. And it, since you know who you're rapping against in the rap battle, you can make it very personal and very cutting. And everybody had a really good time. Uh, so those are, those are the two games
2: I've been playing this week. Very cool. Uh, and it it, it is it, it is crazy how much money like Red Dead made in the first week weekend, right? First weekend made yeah. uh, seven hundred twenty five million dollars it's insane.
3: That's an it's insane also a $60. Amount. It's a $60 game, so it's hard to compare to movies in that way. You know, probably didn't sell probably sold as many tickets as you know Marvel movie did, but um
2: Yeah, but well, just, I, I wanted to bring that up because a lot of people say that video games are overtaking movies in in user numbers and that might be true with mobile games. Uh but like a game like that, uh if you do the math, I think that's about 11 million sold or something, 11 12 million sold. Uh if you do the math on like how many people when saw Avengers Infinity War on opening weekend I think it's like 43 million so it's not quite there yet um but it's it's definitely growing that's an insane I mean it's definitely more money I mean Avengers Infinity War you know the average ticket price is much less than you can buy a video game for so it's you know 257 million dollars was the opening uh three-day weekend for that um but uh yeah so you would recommend Red Dead like I feel like judging from what people are saying online well first of all i don't love westerns first of all so it's probably not for me but it seems like it's slower a lot slower than the first one
3: yeah it, it definitely really leans into the idea of this is the old west guns are slower movement is slower getting around is slower everything the prices of things are way different than you'd expect cuz you you know a penny matters in 1899 uh, I would recommend, if, you, if you're a fan of Grand Theft Auto, you're a fan of the first Red Dead, if you like Rockstar's open world games, it is a definite must-buy. I, I recommend you go out and buy it. You will find something to appreciate here. Uh, if you're on the fence, if you've never played Grand Theft Auto, if, if, you're, if you're intrigued, I go to YouTube. I would find a channel, a, a Let's Play channel from IGN or GameSpot or Giant Bomb or a, a trusted video game website who's not some annoying streamer and watch them play for a bit. Like, watch with some commentary and see what they have to say Watch it in motion for a little bit and, and tr- decide, is this worth it to me? Is this something I will enjoy? I, I, it's, I think it's the best way to um, discover if you want to play a game is re- read a review, but also go to YouTube and find the resources of people who can show you a game in motion and can provide you the insight as to whether or not it's a game for you.
2: Very cool. Ben, what have you been playing? Uh, yeah,
3: I just wanted to
0: give a quick shout out to another podcast called Halloween Unmasked. And this is an eight part podcast uh, that is hosted by film critic Amy Nicholson, who I've got to know a little bit over the years uh, being out here in L.A. She's a really great writer and uh, a very good podcast host. She hosts um, a show called Unspooled with Paul Shear, where they go through the top 100 movies on the AFI list. But Halloween Unmasked is all about uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, and it actually gets into a little bit uh, the new Halloween movie as well. Um, I just wanted to point this out in case you know big Halloween fans. Since we're, I guess we're by the time people are listening to this, it's practically going to be Halloween. Uh, but if you're looking for something to binge listen, uh, I would highly recommend this eight-part podcast series. It's it's great. It has um, tons of interviews with John Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride and Nick Castle and I mean like anybody who's Uh, been associated with the Halloween franchise um, any big players in it basically and uh, yeah it's just a a really in-depth exploration of what that movie meant back in the day and what it means now and and how the fandom has persisted and um, there's a lot of really interesting insights in there so I just wanted to, uh, to give a quick shout out to Halloween Unmasked.
2: Yeah so that's the other side of the coin from my recommendation of Eli Roth's The History of Horror which probably spends you know Seven minutes on Halloween. (laughs) This this spends what, (laughs) like
0: eight hours? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure how long each of the episodes are. There's probably probably range from like 30 to 40 minutes or yeah. something. But uh, but yeah.
2: Yeah. So if you want your deeper dive, uh, head on over there. Uh, but th- we have reached the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at Slash And please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air please go to our iTunes page, write us a review, give us five stars, tell your friends, spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, Peter, do you know what time it is? Uh, Jacob's voice when he says that is so menacing. <laughs> I-, I loved HT's description of it last week where she just imagined him like peering from around the the corner. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, it is time to read from the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and effrontery by Louis A. Saphian. I've randomly opened up to a page. This is the juvenile delinquent section. All right. Who wants to have a great truth about them on Earth first?
2: I'll, I'll step forward.
3: Uh, hey, Peter, yeah. uh, you're uh, you're playing a nice old game of hopscotch. The only
2: problem is you're playing with real scotch.
5: <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, I don't get it.
2: <laughs> because I'm a juvenile delinquent and I'm drinking. I don't.
5: Oh, oh, that's scotch. You.
2: Uh, you're you're drunk.
5: Oh,
3: well, I yeah. see. Well, HG, uh you're an honor student. You're always saying yes, your honor, no, your honor.
2: Oh.
3: <laughs> uh... And Brad, he may be visiting his girlfriend, but he would rather steal hubcaps than third base.
6: Whoa! <laughs>
3: oh
6: <Arsh. laughs> uh,
3: I'm going to read this one just as it says. I am not changing this at all, I promise. Hey, Ben. Oh, yeah. I hear you're very careful about your health. You only smoke filter-tipped marijuanas. <laughs> <laughs> marijuanas? <laughs> okay. Um... Hey Chris, a good thrashing might get the wild oats out of you.
2: All right, I'll okay. take that under advisement. <laughs> I I I just don't understand. In what situation are these supposed to be used? Like, are you are you like is this like... situation? They're
4: for this very situation to
2: read <laughs> I think on the so. podcast. <laughs> the person who wrote this was like, someday, a daily film news podcast we will read these and make fun of my jokes. We have to in figure
6: a... out how to use them in battle rap. <laughs> I th-
2: okay. The, the, Jacob, pick one last one. We need we need to leave on, on, on a high note here. All right. A high
3: all right. Note. <laughs> I'm clo- open the book to a random page. Oh, I'm on entertainers. Oh, okay. Uh, who wants this last one? I'll take it. Hey, Brad, after your performance, it gave you the off-key to the city.
6: Oh,
0: boy. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, you can't ask for a, a more of a high note than that.
1: Uh... Oh!